Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Tucson, Arizona with Megan Morey, the Vice President for College Relations at Williams College. Welcome, Megan. Hi, nice to be here. Well, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. And one of the things we've done uh, to kick off recent discussions on the race podcast uh, is to not only kind of learn a little bit about your background, but really frame it through the lens of your own college experience, which I know in your case did directly contribute to your work in the advancement space. So take us back to uh, Megan, senior year of high school and the decision to go to Ohio Wesleyan University and what that experience was like. Where were you? Who were you? Let's go. So um, it's, it's probably a story that's only interesting to me and maybe my mother. <laughs> I'm an identical twin, and my mom uh, was a teacher, and we have we have three older brothers who all went off to college. And when it came time to look for a school, my mom directed me to look at liberal arts colleges, and my sister always knew she wanted to go to Ohio U and eventually get her master's there in sports marketing. And she's now kind of in a related industry, so that she's always been one of those people that I had no idea what I wanted to do. She knew exactly where she was headed, and she went there and and has thrived um, from that moment on. So I didn't know what liberal arts was. We started looking around at schools and there's so many wonderful schools in Ohio. And um, I set foot on the Ohio Wesleyan campus and the, one of those kind of classic, great tour guide, beautiful day. And I just knew I wanted to go there. Um, so we, I ended up, uh, I was lucky enough to get accepted and ended up um, going to Ohio Wesleyan. Majored in econ because my dad told me to, which is another one of those. <laughs> Uh, you'll always get a job if you have an econ major, but I had no idea when it came time for my senior year of college to really know what I wanted to do. Uh, and I had been a student phone of honor as in the development office for the annual fund, had a great um, director of the annual fund, Brad Bundy, who is at, at Miami of Ohio now, great guy. And he started to um, tell me that this could be a career and something to look into. And then I also had another great mentor um, who was who was um, kind of stuck with me through many years afterwards? Ron Stephanie, who uh, was the vice president of development at Oberlin and had been the director of development at Ohio Wesleyan when I was there, and he went on to Oberlin. And so they kind of convinced me to look at, at schools, and I was lucky enough to get a. I actually had a. Um, I interviewed for entry level annual fund positions after I graduated. St. Lawrence offered me a job, but I thought it was too remote, so I turned it down because I was worried that. The idea of socializing and working with the same people. I didn't think I was mature enough to handle that. And there's, um, and I ended up at Denison, which was a great, great experience and, and fit. Although I've always been sad that I hadn't had the chance to work directly with Karen George, um, who has just been a wonderful kind of mentor to many and, um, and consultant most recently over the years. Well, it's amazing how, how, yeah, no, it's amazing how small the advancement world is. And we were just catching up with Brad uh, the other day, and it really is a uh, kind of one degree separation um, industry. Um, I have to ask, though, uh, and, and we know from many of our guests that the student phone-a-thon has been the gateway drug for advancement professionals for a <laughs> long time. But um, what stood out during that experience? Any memorable experiences as a student caller or even a moment where you were thinking, okay, this, like, this isn't just a student job, this could be a career. 
think, uh, yeah, I started out calling and just you had those cards and a phone with that you dial. There were no headsets or anything. Um, and then I was approached about being the manager and starting to do the hiring. So then I would, I had, I not only worked in the evenings and on weekends, but also went into the development office during the day. So I got to know all the adults that were working there and some of their different, um, the roles that they played. And I think that at that moment, it, it started to seem like something that could be interesting. And all my friends were interviewing for jobs in New York City. They were going to go work uh, to get live together and, and get jobs there. And I just didn't, I wasn't ready. I was, I was, I grew up in a rural part of Ohio and that seemed really um, a bridge too far for me. So um, I, I found comfort on a college campus and I've never left. But after a few years, uh, you did leave the Midwest. I did. Yep. I, um, I followed a college boyfriend who was a golfer to North Carolina and uh, ended up at a college called Barton College. And it was within, I'd say, two weeks, I discovered it was not a great fit for me, um, kind of just the institution and, and kind of where my values were. Um, it was a great place. It just, it wasn't, it just every, and we, I always think, I say to myself, like, we all have one opportunity to make a wrong decision and you just can't make serial wrong decisions in, in your career. Um, and that was it for me. I called Ron, Stephanie, and said, I think I made a mistake. And he said, oh, you have to stay at least three years. You can't job jump. It doesn't look good on your resume, which is an interesting topic, just as an aside, given millennial mindset. So, you know, this is like, I'm, I feel like I'm really dating myself with these kind of um, the, these beliefs. So I hunkered down. And then uh, he called me about six months later and said, I'm now at the University of Redlands. We're looking for an annual fund director. And why don't you come out and take a look? And I said, I can't leave. No, I, I can't do it. You told me I had to stay. And I hung up. And the next morning, I woke up thinking, you know, I probably should just call him back and see if he'd still be entertaining me coming out. And, and he did. And so then I ended up at Redlands. And I was there for seven years. And it, that was a great, great experience. I kind of led the annual fund for a while and then got into major gifts and and I really found a sweet spot. Let's talk a little bit more about that two week in feeling because there are probably people listening right now who maybe are feeling that, but are feeling a little bit stuck or feeling like they need to stick it out for a year or two or can't job hop. Um, how did you, I mean, that's, that's a tough, that is a tough, um, position to be in, especially as a, you know, junior professional to immediately feel that kind of mismatch and fit or values or culture, whatever it may be, but also to then stick it out. So just tell me more about what the maybe few months after that decision were like and how you sort of maintained optimism while in your heart, maybe knowing it wasn't the right fit. Yeah, I think um, I aligned myself with, with the people who were, um, Kind of strong leaders and, and partners in the work. I mean, there were there were many wonderful people that I worked with at that time. So it's just kind of trying to find those people and and really, um, for lack of a better expression, keep your head down, I guess, and and do the work and and just uh, push through. So that's kind of, and I I've, I'm somebody who I mean I like to I, I'm. I think of myself as a pretty positive person and in, in finding the good in stuff. So I don't remember a lot of bad things that happened in my past. You know, I just kind of, I remember the good stuff. And, and when I think back to that time, I remember the people mostly that um, really who I worked with, who um, had similar feelings to me about what, for whatever reasons, what was going on at the, at that institution at that moment in time. Um, and so you just, you, you find ways to find good, but I have to say, when I got to Redlands, that became a family and it was a good fit. So if you're not feeling it, 
you know, it, it does show up in the results of your work and, and you're probably doing the institution a disservice and in addition to yourself by sticking it out too long. Um, yeah. And I know that there's other factors that play into people's decisions and what keeps them in, in staying for longer than they should. And, but um, it's, it's, it's sometimes risks or there's just a great, greater reward at the other end. Well, coming out of college, you said the move to New York seemed like a bridge too far, but instead you went maybe even farther uh, in mileage, at least to Redlands. And it sounds like without mentorship, that probably wouldn't have been something you'd have been comfortable doing. But what was it like just kind of getting out of the Midwest, uh, California oh. vibes? I mean, yeah. I loved it. it. I, I mean, I, I always I say everybody should have a California experience. Absolutely everybody. Um, it was just culturally, I, I loved the idea that, um, and now being at a place like Williams, when, you know, nobody cared where you went to college and, and they just, it, it's such a mix. It's such a mixing bowl of people. Um, at least it was for me. And I really enjoyed that part of it. And I'm very outdoor oriented. So um, just a chance to do all kinds of fun stuff um, when not working was, was wonderful. And it was a different, it, Redlands is a really special place. It, it has its own loyal alumni base. And, um, and so that was fun to work with a group of people who were really dedicated to, the, to their jobs and everybody was kind of rowing in the same direction. That was, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And you had a, a, a good run there. I mean, I think, you know, you often see in this sector um, a couple of different profiles. There's a profile of, uh, maybe the job hopping you talked about, a lot of different jobs because whatever reason, maybe it was to advance, but it's almost like the military. You're just moving base to base to base, um, trying to move up in rank. Or you oftentimes see people who have been somewhere for 30 years and they've gone all in and it's been their one spot. You're in a position where it's kind of in between, which is you've gone really deep at a very small number uh, of institutions, but it seems like the liberal arts um, mission has always been um, core to the roles that you've um, you've taken. I am curious. They're probably, you know, once you go to California, it's hard to leave. But you uh, not only went from uh, uh, L.A. and and left, but you went to a pretty remote little corner of the world uh, in Williamstown. How did that happen? Well, I met my husband, who was in, admi in admission at Redlands, and we were married and had our son, and he's from the East Coast, and I, um, my family was all back here for the most part, and so just, I, I said I wanted to come back. after I didn't want my children to not know their cousins, and uh, so that was kind of the driving force, and, and then, and I said, and I wanted to go, I wanted to work for school. I wanted to find an institution where there was this kind of tradition of philanthropy embedded in in um, the the culture of the of the place, and he said that's like you're that's and he wanted remote. He really wanted. He didn't want to be anywhere near an interstate. Um, I think just like that was kind of a for him. And he was much more familiar with this area and with the Berkshires. And so we uh, were both very very lucky to find jobs. We landed. We both landed jobs here at Williams in 2000. And um, I landed here and I have to say the first couple of weeks I came home and I got in the shower and I sobbed. I thought I'd made a huge, another huge mistake because it was just, it was otherworldly in so many ways. And now it's so funny to be able to admit and say that publicly, but it was. Um, okay. Was very, tell me more about place. that. Why? I mean, just, uh, yeah, tell me more. 
Well, I think um, these institutions are, you know, they're like, I didn't understand what the, I, did, I really just didn't, I guess ignorance is bliss, but I recognize the role that Williams plays in the kind of notion of, which I hate the word elite, but elite higher education. And, um, and there's a, there's a, a huge amount of pride about that for among our alumni and, and the people that work at the college. Um, and so I just had to learn it, but there was, I kept being told by a couple of people who are no longer, um, no longer work in development. So maybe, I'm not going to, of course, name names, but they said, you have to learn the Williams way. You need to, there's a Williams way of doing things. There's a Williams. And that just drove me nuts. Cause it went, and then I, as I, time went on and I, um, it takes a while to feel like you're of a place and for you to believe in it and for it to believe in you and that, you know, so just, I had to be patient and, and learn it. And, um, and, and by the way, my husband was loving it. Like he just, he had a great team and that he, colleagues decided, and they were, he really, so he would come home and say, I love it. This is so fun. And I can't believe this place. And so it was very funny, but um, I think I learned that the Williams way is the way that many institutions do this work and, and there's more than one way to do it. And Williams benefited from, I think some of the ideas and, and thoughts that I had coming from other types of institutions that are forced to be hungry because of their resource constraints and, um, so that was a nice blend. I think we met each other in the middle, so to speak. When did it start to click? I mean, were there early experiences? You shared some of the challenges, but did you have on the other side? I mean, you wanted to work in a place where there was a culture of philanthropy. There are a few places that would rival Williams in that regard. What was that like on the positive? I mean, when did things really start to move in the right direction? Uh, I think when I got out on the road and started learning about Williams from the alumni and I remember meeting with um, some of my favorite alums to this day who would just, they would really help, help me understand what the role that this institution plays in the lives of, of individuals um, from the moment they step on campus and, and you know, throughout their lives. And, uh, and, it, and that was really powerful and seeing the impact, um, this outsized impact of individuals, whether, whether they're raising their own kids or working in their local communities to having, you know, kind of highly visible roles and jobs and um, in the world, it's incredible. I mean, we have 30,000 alumni and what, what they accomplish um, and how they approach it. And it all comes back to the education that they had received when they were here. And that's really, really cool. And when it almost sounds like they were selling you on Williams. I mean, you're the development professional out there supposed to, you know, inspire people to think big and find their passions and make an impact. It almost sounds like it was role reversal. Well, that was their role in the beginning. These were like, you know, our leadership volunteers and, and donors. Um, yeah, you know, I think one of the things I absolutely love about this work, and I think it's probably, I hope it's true for the majority of the people that are doing it, no matter where the institution, we're in learning communities. So that doesn't um, exempt us from learning too and growing and discovering things about ourselves um, in this role. And that, I mean, to be in a, in a, uh, at an institution where that's their primary role and you get to benefit from that in your own way, I think is pretty wonderful. In addition to contributing in the ways that you're, you're expected to. So you, um, you got uh, comfortable and were successful in that tight knit elite liberal arts, deep philanthropic um, tradition um, and then found a slightly different shade of purple to, uh, to go, uh, when you joined Amherst College, uh, which, uh, some of you may know is, is, uh, for sure the, uh, chief rival, uh, of Williams College. And so, 
What was that like? Was it a hard decision? Certainly an amazing career opportunity. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just, you know, it's a job. You, you made a move or was it more emotional than that? Um, I think I'm, I haven't until now, until you've given me this opportunity to, to um, be on your podcast, really thought about how I, it's another one of those ignorance is bliss decisions that, you know, I, I, a headhunter called me and, and said, this is, this, this is a possibility. And um, I thought I'd been at, at uh, Williams for about seven years and we were in a campaign. Everything was crazy successful. I certainly wasn't interested in leaving and things were great. Um, I love the team and, and the volunteers and the leaders that I worked with. And yet, I, you know, you shouldn't close the door. I guess it goes back to like when Ron called and said, come and consider this. And so... So I, I answered the phone and, and returned the phone call, whatever. Um, and then the next thing I know, I'm, I, I have an offer. <laughs> so it was really, and my husband had been traveling for admission. He said, do not make a decision until I come home because we need to talk about this. And, and I think I just thought, I, this is an opportunity. Like, how can I say no to this? It, um, and so I, it, was not, it was not planned. It was just dumb, like blind, I don't know. Which is probably I appreciate. Really no, I appreciate the honesty because I think there are a lot of folks listening who maybe have aspirations for leadership someday and um, maybe have it pick, you know, have, have an image in their mind of things being more intentional or more um, kind of on plan. And so um, I would I would be curious to know um, there is always a balance of staying, you know, really focused and committed to a given role. And you'd spent seven years um, at Williams, but um, how do you know even when to take the headhunter call or to maintain, you know, do you maintain those relationships or um, what advice would you have to, you know, to people listening just around, you know, that balance of staying focused versus staying open-minded? Yeah, I think um, when I look back at that time and I, I've really learned over the years, I mean, I, I've gotten to know a couple of really wonderful recruiters, um, just whether we've hired them to search for positions that we're looking for or, or they've, there's outreach or I've referred others to them. What a um, wonderful resource. Can I ask Megan, yeah. you know, who some of those firms or people are? I'm, I'm, I'm curious and we're certainly looking um, to, to build, you know, Maybe we would host one of them on, on the show someday. Yeah, um, I, mean, I think Jill Lastman is one of my um, favorites. She's she's somebody I just I've I've I really trust her judgment and um, her assessment of the places that that she works with and how she characterizes them um, is is one person that comes to mind. So that's um, Lindauer. And um, anyway, I've, I think I've. Um, that that time, I I just thought I, I need to learn what this is. I didn't even know what it, I mean. It, I think a lot of people are expert at, at, at kind of taking those calls, and and I certainly wasn't. I mean, I think we there's a lot of opportunities that present themselves out there, but you usually push the lead or you kind of return a phone call and say I'm happy. But for whatever reason, I just thought I I just need to figure this out. And I, of course, I knew Amherst. I mean, that was um, so. That's probably why. I mean, how it worked. And I imagine you know, given how tight knit the, uh, the liberal arts community is, you probably knew people who worked there or had gotten to know people. Um, you know, it wasn't like, um, when you first went to Williams and you were kind of coming from a cold start without many ties, you were now sort of a part of this liberal arts community. Is that fair or? Um, I knew a couple people, but not well. I mean, yeah, I knew, I knew, um, 
the, so when I was hired, a couple of the folks in the development office, they, we certainly knew each other from conferences over the years, but um, not, um, not well. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, I, I arrived there and, and it was another one of those kind of finding my way. I mean, I certainly did a lot of research and understood what I was getting into, but it was, um, you know, you have to learn a whole new community. So at, the, and they, at the two week mark, how are you feeling? Like intense doubt or did it feel more, um, natural that time? It wasn't doubt at all. I never doubted it. Um, but it was an overwhelming, like, wow, I have a big job. And I, did, I don't think I understood what it meant to be in that role, to be a member of the senior staff, to, I mean, I, and I had a very close relationship with Steve Burrell, who was the vice president at Williams and, and it's just a great um, boss and, and coach for me over the years. And so, I, I mean, I, but I don't think I appreciated really the, the scope of his job. It was very myopic. What are some of the observations you had when it was your job and it was a big job and maybe bigger than you realized? What are the blind spots maybe that other folks might have as they think about um, making that leap? Um, I think the public part of it, how, how it's really front facing and that's something I've had to grow into and I'm probably only just now mildly becoming comfortable with it. I mean, even doing something like this, um, that I, th- I don't think I understood this, the expectation. And um, I've always been a manager that I see my role as advocating for my team. So that was an easy part of it. But then on the senior staff, how much time you spend and how much, how much you get into the, the really the center of the institution, the core of it and all the different aspects of it and the, the things that, and that's another example where I feel like you're always growing because you're, you're dealing with really, you're dealing with sometimes um, like philosophical things that you have to like really weigh the different pros and cons of whatever you're undertaking um, at an institution before and, and how you communicate about it and things like that. It's just that, and that's intense. And it, and it doesn't, you don't leave it at your desk at night. I know, you know, in a big job like that with such a broad scope and leadership of, uh, you know, one of the significant revenue uh, operations at a, at a college um, and leading a campaign, you, get to have a lot of neat experiences. You get to meet some pretty amazing people, I'm sure on the journey, but what are some of either the people, places, experiences you've had where you just think, wow, like this all started in a student call center in Ohio. I mean, this is pretty amazing. Um, I'm not gonna, I mean, I'm not gonna drop names, but I, I would say that at least once a day, if I'm watching the news or reading the New York Times, or it's like, wow, I know that person, or I, you know, I work with them or they, I asked them for a gift or whatever, or they volunteer. Like, it's just, I got to know them. I got to hear them lecture or they, they're a leader on our board or whatever. Like I, I do, that blows my mind that like, it's just, it's, it sounds so silly and, um, but it, it's true. It, you're right. Uh, I love it. Um, and so just tell me a little bit when you think about the experience at Amherst, what you're you know, what you're proud of, um, having grown into that uh, chief advancement role, um, navigating the broader scope, maybe that you hadn't fully appreciated. But when you think back to that, um, almost 10 years, what really stands out? Um, I think the thing I'm most proud of is when I got there, everybody said, oh, Williams has all the the money because all their loans go into investment banking and, and we all become teachers and professors or we go into like the that's what our alumni do. So, um, or they go into more service oriented. And, and I thought this can't be true. These two institutions can't, aren't, you'll never find two institutions that are more alike than in many ways than Williams and Amherst. So 
um, I thought it, it just can't be true. So we dug in and we discovered so many alums who were definitely, I mean, it was the, the prospect pool turned out to be um, as, as good and, and as strong as, as what Williams is. And uh, at the end of the campaign, two thirds of, the, of all the donors over 100K were first time donors at that level. And I was really, really proud of that. I mean, that, that wow. we, and, and it was a total team effort and, um, and we discovered and inspired uh, people who became, who are now on the board there and who were, had just become real leaders for, for Amherst. And, and they, they didn't even know that, you know, they, that that was a possibility in their future. So I absolutely love that. Megan, can you tell me more about that? Because I think that that kind of, you know, inspiring somebody, challenging them, encouraging them to make that first major gift at that kind of six figure type level is sort of a, a, a big open space in a lot of giving pyramids. And I'm curious if it was just identifying the people and the basic blocking and tackling of getting out there and having the conversations or were there, I don't know, creative packages or scholarships or programs that you established that made it kind of aspirational, but accessible for people who otherwise either might not have given or more likely were giving a thousand bucks a year, 500 bucks a year to the annual fund? Um, I mean, I think in that particular campaign, and it's true for all successful campaigns, it was just, it had a really strong case and, and a, you know, kind of a, we, at the time, I mean, it, it was, it straddled two presidents, but um, Tony Marks was the president when we launched the campaign. Uh, they had announced their first, uh, the first time they've received a gift of a of hundred million dollars. And that really sparked the interest in, um, in kind of wonderment, I think of a lot of people. So we were able to leverage the momentum that that provided and that $25 million gift followed that. Um, and then we, the case, I mean, just the case for what Tony was doing. He was a real, he was a strong, he loved to fundraise. And, and so um, that made it fun for the gift officers. And, and they just, they, they went out there and they pounded the pavement and knocked on doors and, and created a really, what was kind of a unwieldy thing to staff, but worthwhile army of volunteers, which anybody who has worked for me at, during the last, not this most recent Williams campaign, but the one before I went to Amherst and then, and then the Amherst campaign will tell you like, we will never do that again which is recruit a lot of volunteers have to manage them. But, but those, are the, those are the people that became those six figure plus donors. And, and we involved them in the, you know, in the kind of making of the campaign. I think on one hand, there might be an impression that, um, or maybe there was even a, a, a misperception among your team uh, at Amherst. Maybe it's, it's been similar at Williams at time. Maybe, but let's just go back to the Amherst example um, where there was this kind of maybe perception that there wasn't as much wealth or as many kind of um, undiscovered prospects or relationships out there to be built. It's a tight-knit community. It's small. Everybody knows everybody. Yet it sounds like there were a lot of surprises. And um, I'm just curious when you think about leaving no stone unturned or really trying to go deeper into the giving pyramid, if that um, was a surprise to you or if you just, was it rooted in data? Was it gut feel? Was it you found some examples and then started wondering, are there more people like this? Because I feel like that's the part of the giving pyramid that is a bit of a mystery for many of our uh, friends in this community. I mean, honestly, it's just curiosity and starting to ask questions and then working with our research department to say like, 
there's let's like look at these and and knowing that when you start to work with one person who is maybe a director at a private equity firm and you have seven of others and they're they're rated wildly differently tell me why that is and 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 right. really um asking ourselves maybe they maybe we should take a deeper look and consider what their what their potential is and then start from there so it's really i just i, I love to ask questions i'm always kind of just critiquing and, and wondering. Um, and that's, that's what, what we did. I love it. And, um, after a really good run, um, <laughs> you, uh, you, you completed the boomerang back to, uh, Williams. What's the story there? It's a well-worn path <laughs> between the two institutions. Um, I think I, I started, so my, um, one of the things that this is kind of a, a personal tangent, but um, during the time that I was at Amherst, my daughter had a um, very bizarre health thing happen. And um, that led me to really think about other opportunities, like looking at the hospital, just thinking maybe I should leave the liberal arts world. And because and, um, we had such a, we had a great, she's fine. She's, she's thriving and wonderful. Um, but uh, like we were at Boston Children's and Spalding and, and so it got me thinking about, and I started to talk to um, some folks again, and both recruiters and other folks in, uh, in our profession across industries, which I'd never done before. And, and then I, I came to realize that this is, this is where my sweet spot is, and it, it's, it is the fit for me. And, um, and I still had a lot of growing and learning to do. And then at the same time, um, they, I got the call from Williams who said, would you consider looking at this position? And, and I, um, I thought, well, why, you know, I have that job already. Like I have it at Amherst and, and he said, well, just come and meet the president and the search committee and, and see. And, and then I just, I started, I, I don't know, something kind of sparked my interest. And, and then all of a sudden I really wanted the job, which is probably the first time that's, I mean, other than the Redlands moment, because I never take anything for granted where I, I thought I, I will be disappointed if this doesn't happen. And, um, and it did happen. And so then all of a sudden, um, and I thought I, I, if I'm, Amherst was about to launch a campaign and if I was going to stay, then it would be another probably 10 years, um, which is fine. Well, that would have been fine too. But if I was going to make a move, that this was the time to do it. So, so that's what happened. And uh, they were, you know, Williams was just in the uh, last third of their campaign, of a campaign when I walked in. You, you had left Williams to join Amherst in 2007. You came back in 2017. It's a 10-year period. You left kind of right as the financial crisis was getting underway. You came back maybe in the midst of a tech boom and strong real estate markets. And, um, and then certainly things have changed a lot in the last year. But I'm just curious, you know, it's an institution, a lot of culture, tradition, beautiful campus. It's been around for uh, uh, hundreds of years. Um, how different did it feel with a 10-year break? Um, it felt really fresh, which was fun to think of a place that, that like you said, is just steeped in tradition. And um, it felt like a, there was a vibrancy here that I hadn't noticed maybe when I arrived in 2000. And, and that was, I think, as a result of good leadership after good leadership, Morty Shapiro and then Adam Falk. And and um, and there were some there were very familiar faces in the college relations team, and also so many new faces. So that that was interesting and and different. Um, 
and I, and it was a it was just there was so much that had happened and it became much more I think professionalized uh, as a development shop. Um, not that it ever wasn't, but it was just evolving. You know, it wasn't sitting still, and that was fun to experience because this is an institution that many people love when they arrive here and. Um, all these people who had been here and and now they're they're now you know, they were here when I left and still here and and they've grown with the position they haven't they haven't become stagnant or complacent um, and that was kind of fun to to learn about that. Are there certain areas we hear this comment about the professionalization that over the years it's become more professional it's a common refrain among our guests but I'm curious if there are specific aspects of the work that you viewed as being the most professionalized over this period um, or areas that are maybe still yet to be more professionalized that you expect might evolve in the coming years? Yeah, I think I definitely like the frontline fundraising um, just built upon those that had come before them. And, and they, I think that they just, the way they, I mean, Williams, Williams does events really well and getting just the engagement piece. Um, and then this campaign, in addition to fundraising, was about engagement. So, you know, at the end of it, we had 87% of our alumni engaged in the college in some way or another during that time. And um, about 74.3% made a gift. So that's, that's extraordinary, especially um, with all the challenges we have, all of our institutions of, of get, getting those gifts. Um, and, the and way just they for did those it, listening, Megan did say 87% engagement <laughs> and roughly 74.3% giving over the course of the campaign. Um, but, uh, you know, that is maybe somewhat unique to, to Williams, but I think one of the things I love about working with Williams is it's not automatic. You've still got it. Like you, you still are setting aspirational goals that are not easy. They might be, the starting point might be different than other institutions, but you're not just saying, let's do what we did last year. And, and I know you've been really intentional and your team has been intentional about continuing to push for even more excellence in spite of being viewed as being uh, the top. And I, I think that's really um, inspiring for a lot of folks, no matter where they are on participation and engagement at their shops. And we learn from so many other institutions and what they're doing. I mean, that's- um, Who do you learn from? I mean, who, do you, who, who does Williams look up to uh, from an advancement perspective? Well, over the, I mean, it, it just depends on what the program is, but, you know, I think I, I turn to some of the folks that I'm close with who are my counterparts, like at Holy Cross, Tracy Barlock, and what they're doing. Um, I learn a lot, you know, um, Kenyon is another institution, uh, Carleton. Um, so it's everywhere. It's, it's, and, um, and then kind of benefiting from partnerships that we've made through Evertrue and other types of um, firms that Plus Delta was, a, I think, a, a great asset for, and we really made the most of an opportunity with that group. So there's, but we, we've, we were fortunate to have the types of resources to be able to do those things and, and use them wisely. And we have, as you said, you know, Laura um, Day, who's probably, um, we share in common. She's one of my favorite people. Um, and in the profession, like they're just hungry to do more and to, to solve solve the, the dilemma or the whatever the, the thing is that we're trying to overcome or achieve. And that's fun. Well, let's, let's talk about one other aspect of the work and certainly the connection between engagement and fundraising has always been important. I think that Williams um, objectively has been doing that longer than just about anyone else um, or maybe longer than anyone else. Um, tell me a little bit about this bicentennial, right? 200 years 
of alumni uh, association or alumni engagement at Williams? So tonight we're gonna um, actually at, at eight o'clock, we're having the Society of Alumni Bicentennial premiere. We're kicking it off and it's a year long celebration uh, marking the moment when the um, some faculty took the books from Williams and went over the, the mountain and started Amherst College and alumni got together and said we can't ha we have to save Williams and they did and they've been doing it ever since they've been supporting Williams ever since and um, so that's Laura Laura can add more I, I mean listen to her podcast um, interview she's she has much more detail to add but that's the crux of it and um, it's a really fun fun story and this is a moment where this I'm so excited for this year and what the alumni relations team has done and how they're inspiring people across our campus to be a part of it and celebrate our alumni and and also recognize um, how we're, we've changed over the generations yeah. and how we're yeah. going to be changing even more as our demographics and student body changes and how we prepare for that and how we recognize that it wasn't always rosy for every every student and therefore every alum and we want to we want to kind of um, acknowledge that and and um, and embrace it, just as we embrace all the good stuff too. So that's that's what this year is about, and there's a lot of great programming. I encourage people to kind of go to our website and try to take advantage of accessing as much as you can if you want to see how a, a truly talented group of people pivoted from a well thought out plan of tons of volunteers, strong leadership at the volunteer and staff level to have in-person events and then have COVID hit and move completely to virtual. It's been amazing. I, uh, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm just so happy to hear your enthusiasm and positivity. It's not like, <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's too bad that we have to do it this way, that we're in COVID or whatever. I mean, it sounds like you're just genuinely excited that the alternative hybrid pivoted approach is gonna be great. And it's gonna be great for your community. And you're probably gonna be able to reach people who will be able to be a part of it who otherwise might not have been. And that's um, maybe a silver lining here. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, it's definitely a silver lining. Um, so in the spirit of pivoting and reconsidering things around COVID, we have talked a lot about uh, gift officer travel, the ability to engage donors remotely, the potential to be more efficient because we're not spending all that time and money and energy on the road but there also is an environmental component that you brought up in our pre-call that I don't think has really been discussed. And um, I don't want to overstate how much you all have thought about it, but um, it is a real priority um, just given um, how much climate change um, is being elevated as a uh, key priority for, um, for society, for the world, for a new administration, et cetera. Uh, and a lot of colleges have had really stated um, environmental objectives or green initiatives that, let's be honest, don't align very well with gift officer visit goals, at least not when they were doing so uh, by way of, of uh, various airlines. And so just tell me a little bit your perspective on the broad efficiency and ability to engage constituents remotely, but maybe the potential environmental impact. Yeah, uh, so I think what I mentioned to you in our pre-call was that we have, we, as part of our strategic plan, we have some sustainability goals and part of it is our carbon emission reduction. And the biggest, um, in the kind of influencer of that is airline travel. And we are, uh, along with emission and a couple other areas are the kind of heaviest users. So we've been asked to partner with our provost and our Center for Environmental Studies and our Zilka Center 
to think through um, how we could uh, contribute to reducing and making a difference. And that's scary for our team, um, but I'm glad that they were asked to think through, to be educated together and then think through how we can make those changes and, and really use some um, lessons and learn from this year to complement uh, some of the in-person travel. I have no idea how it'll go or how it's gonna, how we're gonna roll it out, but um, I, th I think it's, it'll, I'm glad that we're on the ground and we were asked to, to be partners versus just having something imposed on us so that, you know, we'll, we'll let you know, stay tuned. But I, I, I'm excited about it. I do, I don't know how, I mean, we all, things will be different after this, but I keep, everyone says, oh, we can do more um, in like virtual meetings, but I keep thinking, but that we're all going to be going out to eat. We're all going to have evening plans again, eventually. So, you know, how do you, how are we going to, how are we going to make this, make it a blended um, ecosystem between virtual and in-person and, yeah. and how to do that really well? Um, we're going to have to rely on learning from each other to, to make that happen. So. Have you as a leader or maybe by way of your colleagues or even through your collaborations with the president or other leaders at, on campus, I mean, have you had any um, virtual experiences or maybe visits by way of Zoom that have been really successful or that maybe helped open your eyes to um, the potential to engage people in this manner or maybe experiences where you're feeling like, oh, I really just need to be there in person because it's, it's truly not the same. Um, no, I think we have great examples where we, it, it's kind of, we need to meet, let's meet and let's, and it gets done. And it, all of a sudden, you know, you, you decide that on Monday and by Friday, you've, you've already been in front of yeah. the, the donor or the couple or whomever to, to address whatever it is. And, and then, and then you're doing the contact report right after you hang up and you're, you know, you're getting like the next steps in line instead of like running to the next office and going right into the next visit. So I think there's great examples of that. And also, um, like the opportunity to just meet with the president right before face-to-face -face and, and have that strategy session. And then afterward, I don't know, it, it, there's a lot of efficiency in, yeah. in this. What, but what about bringing in like faculty or other people who could never go on that visit with you? Have you had any opportunities to try that yet? Yep. Yeah. We've, we've definitely had some partnership visits. Gift officers are doing that all the time. And I'm on Monday, I have an appointment with a faculty member and a, a foundation, um, to update them and, and make an ask. So it's, yes, absolutely. And I think it, it it's weird sometimes. I mean, when you, when you think about it, that this person's sitting in their living room or their office in their attic and, and here I am and mine and, and we're calling this up. I don't know, it's just, and right before this call, I actually had a, with a, a former trustee who's a, a star fundraising volunteer for us. She and I um, met with somebody else who happened to be on Martha's Vineyard today, so. I love it. Yeah, I think that um, the the combination of just speed and pace, right? Sometimes the visit schedule and when we could get to LA or when we could get to New York sort of drove the pace of the conversation in an arbitrary way. And now I think there's just way less friction to do things faster. And, and I think that has great potential to support revenue growth over time. And then certainly the ability to be more collaborative and to create a better donor experience by involving people who realistically either could not have traveled with you or with your team, or if they could, it would have taken four months to figure out a time when schedules could, could all be aligned. And I think um, those are two areas that I hope we can kind of take with us going forward. Me too, me too. You, um, 
uh, one comment you made, and we will, um, you know, start to wrap up here. I want to be sensitive of your time and really appreciate um, everything you've shared so far. But um, we asked you if you could, you know, change one thing about advancement, what would it be? And you said it isn't rocket science, but some people in advancement will lead you to think it is. Now, you've probably worked with some rocket scientists uh, over the years at Amherst and Williams. And so, you, you know um, what that means. Uh, what do you mean by that comment, though? And um, what is it if it's not rocket science? It's, it's doing the work. I think that this, um, there's so many, uh, there are so many other professions and careers that can easily translate into doing the work that we do. I mean, it is sales and it's, um, it's listening and it's thinking and it's asking and, and, and then listening. <laughs> and responding. Um, so I, I think sometimes I've worked for people who just, this is all they've done and that's all, this is all I've done. But I think some of the best hires I've made are people that come from, that have come from other industries and brought with them a pace and a, and a level of, um, a, a, a way of doing things and an experience that has just really elevated um, their own uh, success at the work and also the people that, that surround them. So when you think about the people who have been the most successful or the people that you think of, if you were building your dream team of advancement professionals, are there common characteristics or traits or skills that you've observed? Sounds like just doing the work is one of them. I think people who are really curious and, and they have ambition in them to see something through and they, they follow through and they, um, they're, they're open to all kinds of different experiences and types of people and no, not one size fits all. And so they're ready to be nimble and, and pivot with a, with a situation. Um, and they're able to translate the, the mission and the goals of the institution um, and represent them to, and, 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 and to present them in the forms that, that make sense to whomever they're speaking to about it. So I don't, I don't know, I think that's, it's, it's, it's communications, it's, it's all those things. Um, in the spirit of, of team building, um, are you all hiring right now? I know it's been a, a pause or a freeze for many folks this year and last year, but um, where are you on that? So we've been spectrum? frozen since um, COVID started. We did one hire, which was to hire our, our um, director of our Women's Giving Initiative, which is um, something that we launched after the, the SOX campaign. And, and I was able to uh, kind of advocate for my team and, and persuade the powers that be that this was important. So we were, so she's been on, she started in, in June. Otherwise um, we're waiting for the college to let us know when we can go ahead and proceed with some of our frozen positions. So not actively yet, but I hope so soon. Love it. Well, if folks that are listening want to stay in touch with you, Megan, what's the best way? I know you're on LinkedIn. Um, any other uh, channels you prefer? Yeah, or you know where to find me by email um, from our website. It's I'd, I'd be happy to to chat, and I've benefited from the wisdom and kindness and, and valuable time of others throughout my career. And 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 welcome to return the favor. Well, thank you for sharing a lot of that wisdom today. And I will say I I, I want to make sure you're able to get uh, uh, well prepared for the 200th uh, premiere. Um, for those of you listening, if you are also uh, in the midst of planning a big now virtual or hybrid type um, celebration, check out alumni.williams.edu slash 200. It's really 
um, a beautiful um, uh, site with a great set of activities upcoming. Um, and I have no doubt um, in the spirit of copy and steal everything that there will be folks uh, watching very closely. So Megan, uh, congratulations on that. Thank you um, for your time. And I wish you the best uh, here in 2021. Likewise, take care. Cheers.